Welcome on in to the Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Matt Lowell, Managing Editor of Golf Course Industry Magazine, joined as always by my friend and colleague, GCI Editor-in-Chief Guy Cipriano. You'll hear from him in just a minute. This is episode 39, 39, I don't know how that's happened, of Greens with Envy, the podcast where Guy and I get together, we talk about where we've been, who we've seen, who we've talked with, little little notes and tidbits, and there's some good stuff in this episode. A little bit of Chicago, a little bit of New England. But before any of that, a few quick housekeeping notes. The April issue is finished. It is off to the printers. It's not online yet. It will be soon. Cover package for the second straight April. Three wonderful stories about the environment and how golf courses are working with it and uh, trying to keep it going by our incredibly talented contributor, Lee Carr. Check those out when they are online a little bit later this month. Also, part two, Turf Heads Grilling. Hashtag Turf Heads Grilling. That's back, our partner again on that. The wonderful folks at AquaAid Solutions. Look for more about part two, year two, online this week. But just rest assured, if you grill, whether you grill meats, whether you grill veggies, whether you grill for yourself, whether you grill for your whole team. If you post photos online and you tag hashtag TurfHeadsGrilling, you tag us, you tag Aquaid Solutions, uh, we'll probably retweet it and you might end up with some swag or even a nice little nice little cookout at your course. Also, just a shameless plug, this is only one of six podcasts on the Superintendent Radio Network. We also have, of course, coming up next, next week, uh, Beyond the Page, the podcast that dives a little deeper into some of the stories and columns in each issue. We have Off the Course, where I talk with turf pros about literally anything that's not their job. Great conversation last month with Paul Sermersheim and how he burned out and left the industry in his 20s and volunteered for the Peace Corps and then wound up meeting his wife in Mexico. It's an incredible story. Uh, Guy talks with members of the ASGCA in Tartan Talks every month, that podcast now in its sixth year, and two really, really talented contributors, Rick Wolfel with Wonderful Women of Golf and Trent Manning with Real Turf Techs. Check all those out on the Superintendent Radio Network. All right, that's enough for me. We're almost three minutes into this. Let's get a different voice on, nerding out in gear from two different courses, Guy Cipriano, back from the East Coast. Where am I and what am I doing right now, Matt? Because I've been all over the place over the past five weeks, and we have a lot to discuss. I guess you're lucky to be here. You you got bumped by choice from a flight last night, and you would have been bumped from another flight this morning, uh, thanks to some very lucrative bumping packages. But you're here. We're recording. It's good to see you. It's good to talk with you. If you are ever in the position to... Take advantage of what the airline is offering to people volunteering to change their flights on an oversold flight, and you have that type of flexibility and adaptability in your personal life. Go for it. Yeah, I think – what did you say they gave you, $25,000? About as much as uh, George May <laughs> gave golfers at the Tam O'Shanter Open in Chicago in the <laughs> 1940s and 50s, which we'll get into later in the podcast. Well – we will get to Tam O'Shanter. I think it's actually the second course on the outline. Let's start, though, with some Chicagoland. And actually, am I supposed to give trivia first? No. Oh, yes, I am. 
Oh, no, it says Matt interjects some Chicago and New England trivia along the way. So I don't have to start with that. Good. Well, then let's just start with Chicago courses because people aren't here to hear random trivia. They're here to hear about golf courses. Let's start with uh, a 130-year-old course. It's got to be one of the older courses in Illinois, and that is Downers Grove Golf Club. You were there not too long ago while I was in Chicagoland on a family vacation. Downers Grove Golf Club. You're probably wondering, what the heck is that, and how is it 130 years old? Well, right. it is the site of the original Chicago Golf Club, laid out by none other than Charles Blair McDonald. In 1892, he did the first nine holes. 1893, he did the second nine holes. Of course, uh, a few years after that, Chicago Golf Club moved to the Wheat location where it is today, and that's you know one of Char- Charles Blair McDonald's gems and one of the probably more well-known golf courses in the world but it started at what is now downers grove uh just a it's a nine hole course now it's operated by the downers grove park district and here's the cool thing about it it is played by a wide variety of players over forty four thousand rounds last year and there's still some original charles blair mcdonald stuff in the ground there despite you know all the changes to the, the community and the surrounding land and the golf course over the last 130 years. So really it's maybe the only place in the world where a golfer can play Charles Blair McDonald's work at an affordable rate or without <laughs> being a member. You can go around there for less than 20 bucks wow. in nine holes. I was there working on a story about the historic nine holers of Chicago and their viability today. So I had a wonderful, uh, walk around the golf course. It was a bit of a dreary day. I walked it one through nine. Then I, I spoke with uh, Superintendent J- Jeff Posen, who's a, a great story, and General Manager Ken McCormick in the clubhouse. And then I walked it from nine backwards afterwards, and I just soaked the place up, Matt. You could feel that, you could feel that this was a place that's been around for a long time, and it's still a, a successful place today. It, it had some uh, right away on the first hole. You, you you tee off, you walk down, you walk up, walk up to a green second hole, you walk up to the green third hole, you walk up a lot. You know, you, you think, I think a lot of people think Chicago flat, right? Midwest. Not at all. But it's really not. It's some of the best golf terrain yeah. on the earth when you, when you talk about how there's uh, some topography and some elevation, but it's not severe. It's just rolling land in the Chicago suburbs, especially Downers Grove, which was a charming community it's kind of cool because the golf course was only a few blocks from the metro line which is the public um, railway in chicago so you think about it 1890s um there weren't cars so how do people get to the golf course they needed rail and public transportation and i've been told that there are a lot of facilities in chicago especially the older clubs that aren't far from metro stations because that's how people got to the golf courses back then and it made sense to delay your golf course out uh, near one of those because that's how people would be able to get there. Well, and you'll still find a lot of suburban cities, more so on the south side, but a lot on the north side too, that you'll be only a mile or a mile and a half from a train station anyway. Uh, where we grew up in, in Flossmore, Homewood, uh, the train station to downtown was maybe maybe a mile and a quarter from my house. So if you wanted to take the train in, you certainly could. Uh, public transportation, the L in Chicago, is wildly underrated. Everybody hears about the New York subway. Maybe you hear San Francisco's 
uh, BART system, but I would I would put really the New York subway is number one, but I think Chicago is probably the number two public transportation system in terms of trains and buses and everything uh, anywhere in the country. And I wonder how many people today roll on onto the subway or the rail with their their golf clubs. I wonder what looks they get if they do walk on with. Their, I'm sure their there's golf some. Clubs. It happens a lot out. Yeah. And, from what I'm told in New York City, especially people getting out to some of the facilities yeah. in Long Island, including uh, you know Bethpage, you know people do tote their golf clubs onto public transportation. So, uh, yeah, Downers Grove, uh, great piece of land, you know, tremendous history, lots of golfers from lots of different backgrounds and skill levels play there. But the thing that really stuck out with me in this. You know, is a theme basically, Matt, everywhere we go is the superintendent that we met. Jeff mm-hmm. Posen's been there for 18 years. Uh, he read Charles Blair McDonald's Scotland's Gift Golf when he was in <laughs> high school. So he's somebody that has been into the yeah. architecture side of the industry for a long time, you know, worked at some bigger facilities, but landed this job 18 years ago and just has totally, uh, eating everything up about working on a golf course with that history. The the park district entrusts him to do course improvement projects when he has the time and has the resources. Now, get it, it's just Jeff and his assistant, and they get maybe four to six seasonal people a year. Hmm. So not, not a big crew, but you know, Jeff has, uh, over the last few years, worked to restore some bunkers, and there were really some cool bunkers with um, you know fescue native grasses, Behind them, you know, not on the front of the faces, but on the back of the bunkers, uh, they use a cool brown sand that just really fits the site. And from what I've been told, the hole that's closest to C.B. McDonald's original work is the seventh hole, par four on the periphery of the property. There's an auto dealership to the left. <laughs> and then, you, you know, behind the green is the uh, Downers Grove Public Rec Center, which is a gleaming facility. Uh, the green is 30 to 35 yards wide and then just has a severe slope and if they got the green speeds too fast you know people who would hit shots behind the hole would putt down and the ball would go 40 or 50 yards down in the fairway so it's a hole where they really have to be careful with how they keep the green speeds and the maintenance but you know and and then from there you walk up eighth tee which is an elevated tee over some native fescue areas it's a par three just a great view of the, the property and when i was up there uh, my first walk around the course, I just kind of soaked all the, the the history in and what this place has meant to people for a long period of time. You know, another hole, the eighth, where Jeff has done some restorative bunker work, especially behind the, the green. There's a, a, a bunker that has some fescue behind it. And then there's two Austrian pine trees that are behind the bunker that just look super, super cool. It's a facility, like I said, that's used by all sorts of players. Uh, the driving range has been improved over the years. A few years ago, they averaged. Uh, added some covered and heated bays. And in fact, on the day I was there, it was in late March. It was like an afternoon. It was maybe 45 degrees dreary. And it was so cool because I was talking to Jeff Posen and Ken McCormick in the in the clubhouse, which had a lot of CB McDonald routings and materials, which I totally ate up. Uh, you look out the window and despite the dreary weather, there were parents taking their kids to a, a golf clinic that night. So hmm. that's the thing about Chicago. Uh, there's more public golf there than any market in the United States. And of course, there's some really well-known private golf courses too. Sure. And you can make the argument that perhaps Chicago has the best blend of public and private golf, maybe in the entire world in terms of accessible facilities and just facilities that have hosted big tournaments or, or um, you know, highly regarded clubs and private facilities. And 
I had not been on the ground on a Chicago golf course for a few years. So that was a great place to, to get back into it and, you know, be one of the pillars of a story here. I'm going to tell in a few months, they don't get much more historic than Downers Grove. But the cool thing is you don't have to exactly look like you did in the 1890s or the early 1900s to be successful. You know, there's some people that are, you restore it to its original form or nothing. And it's not a successful or a viable golf facility unless you take it purely back to its Charles Blair McDonald or Donald Ross or A.W. Tillinghast form. Well, guess what? Communities evolve over time. Mm -hmm. Land evolves over time. The needs of people evolve over time. And I, I think that's what's really cool about Downers Grove Golf Club is that you had the you know, the modern practice facilities that, that, you know, they had to take away some of the golf course to build, but that's huge for the community to have a public access driving range that's open year-round. Yet, when you go around the golf course, you still feel some of that old, and some of that old is still exactly uh, what it was, or pretty darn close to what it was in the 1890s and early 1900s. So, a great mix of uh, what golf is today with what golf was back then, and it's obviously a huge financial success for the Downers Grove Park District because close to 45,000 rounds on a nine-hole course in a cool-weather <laughs> climate. Those are kind of uh, baffling numbers to consider, Matt. Well, and your point to modernizing courses, say that it has to be exactly like it was in 1892 or 1893. That's like saying that you go to Wrigley Field and you still have the trough urinals in the men's room or you don't add certain amenities like, uh, you know, you're still eating just hot dogs and Cracker Jacks. So, like you said, times change. But when they did remove the trough urinals from Wrigley, people complained and the, the lines were very long for a few games. Uh, now it probably uh, costs less to install a urinal at Wrigley Field, a new one, than it probably does to buy a ticket to a Cubs game from what people <laughs> in Chicago were telling me when I was there. They're, 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 they're pretty pricey. Or even to park near Wrigley Field for a Cubs game. Well, that's why you take public transportation. That's why you take the L. Uh, you also visited Tam O'Shanter, which this is pretty cool. 69 years ago, so a big anniversary coming up next year, Tam O'Shanter Golf Course was the site of the first nationally televised golf tournament. Do you know offhand, I don't know, that's why I'm asking you, do you know offhand whether there's video of that still in existence? Or There, there is. You can go actually go is. on the website and see clips from it. Okay. And I, I asked because in the early days of television, so many networks would just take the, maybe you know this, so many networks would take the raw film and they would tape over. And so all these classic television broadcasts don't exist anymore whether it was news or comedies or dramas or episodes of certain shows, they would tape over and they would uh, just reuse the film until it wore out. But this 1953 tournament, this still is, is in existence. It's pretty cool. Yeah, part of the golf course is. So it was an 18-hole facility back in that era owned by a uh, Chicago businessman named George May who was mm -hmm. way ahead of his times in terms of promoting golf and uh, golf Innovation. They have a museum there at Tam O'Shanter, which uh, Superintendent Jim Stoneberg and Director of Golf Instruction Chris Ergo took me through. And you look at some of the, the pictures from those tournaments in the 50s, which were the first golf tournaments ever ever televised anywhere. And, you know, George May had the players wear their names on the back, which, you know, <laughs> caddy bibs today to identify players yeah. at a golf tournament. Bleachers for the fans around the first tee in 18th green. Views from the clubhouse. Real quick, it's funny that they did that because the first team to ever wear their baseball, their first baseball team to ever wear uh, 
names on the backs of road jerseys was the White Sox. Yeah, Bill Vack. Um, I believe he would have been there at the time, but this was 1960. 1960. So George May was ahead of the curve on most MLB teams putting names on jerseys. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so you look at the photos in, in, in that museum, you see what the golf course looked like, and we'll get into that. I mean, imagine how difficult it was to televise a golf event in 1953. Look how difficult it is now when you go to a tournament site and see the, the towers and the cords and the cameras and the sound that have to go all over the place. But there was one picture that was particularly striking. It was the first tee, and they had uh, you know cars parked by the first tee. And you know why they were parked there? So that they had a place to put the TV camera. So the, 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 the camera operators would sta- stand on the hoods of the car <laughs> and get footage there and also the fields that george may attracted were just players from all over the world like i was looking at the field for 1953 which was won by uh lou warsham who hold out a wedge on the last hole so can you imagine the first televised golf tournament has a uh basically a walk-off ending like that that's something that you know and i don't even think george may could, could have envisioned but you look no. at some of the fields he he attracted and you know i saw that peter thompson was at the tournament in 1953. I mean, he was from Australia, of course, a multiple time open championship winner. You know, he very rarely played in America. I mean, Roberto Di Vincenzo from Argentina was in the field. There was an Egyptian player from that field. So I was just looking at some of the nations that were represented. Uh, there were South Africans in the field. So that was also ahead of its time. The purse was so good or there were appearance fees involved. I mean, the purse was like, I think, you know, he had some purses that were over a hundred thousand dollars, and now that's not—you don't even have to finish in the top ten of a PGA Tour event to get that type of money. Well, and you told me this when you got back earlier this week, and, and I adjusted it for inflation. And even com- for inflation, it's not much compared to current purses. But at the time, yeah, you're right. Hundred grand was a ton. And actually, in my hands right now, I have the program from the 1957 George S. Mays Tam O'Shanter Golf Tournament. On the front of the program, it says the world's richest golf tournaments, $1.5 million in prizes, 1941 through 1957. So George mm-hmm. May didn't cut costs on his golf tournament. Now, sadly, you know, the, there were some family – there were some disputes with George May and the tour and George May's family. And in the 1960s, the golf course basically went away. Well, you know, in the 1970s, the Niles Park District took over some of the land – and they created a nine-hole course uh, on one side of the north branch of the Chicago River, which flew, flowed right between the original Tam O'Shanter Country Club. Now, that land today, you know, there's a nine-hole golf course, and then it's a heavy, heavy industrial area. In fact, I think at one point in time, there was Sarno's Cookies bordered the course, and they made butter cookies. And Superintendent Jim Stoneberg was telling me that you could smell the butter cookies <laughs> in the air and uh you know, to focus now I, I forget what i saw when i was driving around i think i saw a coca-cola facility you know a few blocks away was the leaning tower of niles illinois there's a leaning tower of pisa's re- replica in niles illinois but uh you know today like the course is nine holes it's around 2500 yards it's a perfect place for people to play affordable golf in 2018 there was a renovation done by loman quitno golf Course architects. Todd Quitno was out there on the day that I was out there speaking to me for the story. Uh, Doug Myslinski from the Wadsworth Company was really involved in uh, creating a drainage plan to improve the site because it is a drainage nightmare. I mean, it is on a floodplain in a heavy industrial area with the Chicago 
river flowing through the golf course. So you can just imagine what happens uh, there. But it was, you know, cool to see that just four years ago, the park district invested in the facility. I mean, they have better billy bunker in the bunker. So that helps with drainage. They elevated some tees to mitigate some flooding on them. Uh, you know, re- really, really good playing surfaces. The land doesn't have as much topography as Downers Grove Golf Club, but there's some topography there, but it's a really tight site. I'm not even sure it's 40 acres. And, mm. you know, they do a ton of rounds too, close to 40,000 rounds. And I just can't imagine, you know, seeing that much golf being pumped out on that t- tight of a site. There is, uh, you know, a lot of parallel holes on the interior property, some short par fours, which when you talk about getting people through a golf course, Quickly, that's tough to do with short par fours because everybody thinks they can hit the green, even though very few can hit the green. Uh, there are some greens that were close to the original form, according to Todd Quitno and Jim Stoneberg, and there are some spacious greens. And that was a really fun visit. Jim Stoneberg's been there for 22 years. He's getting close to retirement. He's been a longtime employee of the Niles Park District. You know, before he became superintendent at Tam O'Shanner, he was the uh, groundskeeper for the playing fields in in the community made the, the switch over to golf in 2000 didn't really know much about golf course maintenance and just started calling other superintendents and, and picking the brains of people and now he's just had a tremendous run there up until last year he was the only full-time employee on the crew so it was just wow. him and you know four to six seasonal employees he got a, another full-time employee last year so you, you think about these historic nine holers and it's basically uh just two full-time employees at at each of them and they're providing a product that's enjoyed by so many people that you know means so much to to their communities and their park districts and you know both those golf courses downers grove golf club and tam o'shanner make money for their their park districts and they're examples where if you have nine interesting holes you keep them well maintained <laughs> you, you, you yep. stay out of the superintendent's business and let him or her do what they deem fit on the golf course. You invest in some capital improvements. And in the case of uh, Tam O'Shanner, I mean, it was well over a million dollar project in 2018 to uh, improve the drainage and and the bunkers and the tees and the other things they had to do to the golf course. You know, just shows what, what is possible. And it doesn't take sometimes 20 or 30 people to produce a golf course. It's enjoyed by a lot of people. Uh, some amazing stories by Jim Stoneberg about some of the things he's uh, seen flow through the river over the years. I don't think they're necessarily <laughs> fit for broadcast or printing, but just imagine, you know, the city of Chicago border is not very far, just a few miles away. So just imagine the things that flow through the branch of a Chicago river. I don't um, know what you're insinuating you know, that guy. In a floodplain, he said that they, I will tell you something, He, you know, there are a lot of other courses that are on the same floodplain, and they will see course accessory uh course accessories from other courses sometimes when there is a heavy flood and you know there are periods almost every summer where the golf course has to close for a day or two or even Mm -hmm. a few days because of severe flooding there's just nothing you can do about it it sits on a floodplain and a lot of golf courses in the united states sit on a floodplain but not only are they valuable recreational um, amenities for residents that live in these communities and outside communities but they're also very important for for moving stormwater because if you think about uh, a heavily populated area like Chicago, if that green space wasn't there, where, where would all the water go? Well, I mean, you'd have homes flood, you'd have neighborhoods flood. That's why. That's why the whole downtown of Chicago was basically built six feet up. I mean, mm-hmm. it was after the fire, but also because of flooding. Like the entire downtown is what is that? I think it is six feet yep. above above water level. 
you had one more stop in Chicago. That was at Seven Bridges Golf Club. That was not necessarily a course tour. That was more a We One Foundation fundraiser. Always great to to see what they're up to. Uh, and the March meeting of the MAGCS, who I'm actually drinking out of one of their uh, branded Tervis tumblers right now. Yeah, Luke Sella, who uh, it's it's a pretty neat logo. You know, runs. Numerous superintendent chapters there as executive director and also um, it's the point person for the We One Foundation invited me to present at their meeting. It was quite an honor to, to be there. Uh, it's one of those events where everybody was hoping for bad weather because if it was nice outside, like 70 and sunny, probably yeah. nobody would show up because right. everybody would have to work on the golf course. It was awesome to see the group that was there and the camaraderie and the fellowship. And, you know, not only were there golf course superintendents there and assistant superintendents, uh, Saw some golf course architects there, some golf course builders, saw a lot of uh, golf course maintenance industry professionals that work for the various companies. Uh, the companies donated items for the auction, and it was really cool to see um, that auction take place. Of course, the We One Foundation does golf fundraisers, too, throughout the year. And, you know, as they said at the event, you know, hopefully we never have to use this money. Because the We One Foundation benefits superintendents and their families in need, so... It's like a lot of a lot of charities. You do whatever you can to raise as much money for them, but hopefully, it doesn't have to be tapped into too much because that means that people aren't falling on hard times. All right, on to another part of the country. Unless you, no, hold on. I got a question for you. Yeah, you were in Chicago away. on vacation that yeah. week with your lovely family, taking your daughter to every imaginable museum because the weather was crap. So you had mm-hmm. to find indoor things to do. Two things. Well, we walked at all the museums too, so Give we us were still outside a lot. Matt Lowell's indoor visitor guide to Chicago. Where would you take a kid? Where would you take a an adult when it rains, or if you just want to do indoor stuff? And then, what's the best pizza in Chicago? Oh well, there's no best. There's just a lot of different preferences. So we did the city pass, which you have up to nine days. You can go to up to five different attractions. We opted for the Field Museum of Natural History, which among many other attractions has Sue. I believe Sue is the most complete Tyrannosaurus Rex ever discovered. She is such an attraction. She has her own branded gift store in the museum. Tremendous fun in there. All sorts of of, of beautiful fossils and, and artifacts and you could spend weeks in there. We went to the Shedd Aquarium, which was my daughter's favorite. She loved the beluga whales and now sleeps with a stuffed beluga whale every night. That thing even has a blowhole, the stuffed animal. We went to the Adler Planetarium, which she liked, but I, I don't think space is quite in her her wheelhouse at this moment. The aquarium probably a little bit more so. We went to the Art Institute of Chicago, which is probably my favorite and one of the finest museums anywhere in the country. If you like any era of art, cannot recommend that highly enough. My five-year-old preferred the mummies and modern art of all things. She dug 20th century art, which we'll get to in just a second. And then we wrapped up with a trip to the Willis <sighs> Nay Sears Tower and the observation deck on the 103rd floor, which she liked and, and my wife liked. I'd never been up there. 
that was really fun. You wanted some Chicago trivia, so here are three random bits of trivia. If you have any signed books, any at all, in your library, I'm sure somebody would have started the book signing at some point. But the book signing as an event started because of one of the finest retailers in the country, Marshall Field, namesake of the long-running Chicago staple Marshall Fields. Now, Marshall Fields does not exist anymore because it was purchased by Macy's, and the Macy's name is on it, and that rankled a lot of people in and around Chicagoland. But Marshall Field, one of the finest department stores anywhere in the world, and he did a lot of things, including basically making the tea room a legitimate midday stop for women so they didn't have to go home and uh, drop off their things and come back after eating lunch at home. You, you could stay out and shop all day. But among many other things, he basically created the book signing as an event. So there's one thing that originated in Chicago. If you have ever sung Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, that was actually created for a holiday campaign by Montgomery Ward, uh, also in Chicago, and uh, basically created for a coloring book. So that's fun. And then if you have ever driven on or just sung the song, Route 66, Historic Route 66, ends in downtown Chicago, and it ends one block south of the Art Institute of Chicago. You can see it. I believe it's the uh, it's the intersection, I think, of Jackson and Michigan, I think. But the Art Institute of Chicago, among many, many other famous pieces, I'm just going to do a few. A Sunday Afternoon uh, on the Grand Jot Island, that's by George Sherratt, the most famous pointillist painting probably ever produced. Edward Hopper's Nighthawks, Grant Wood's American Gothic, one of the most parodied paintings of all time. Picasso's The Old Guitarist from his Blue Period. We saw that up close. Um, what else? There's some Dali, uh, some Georgia O'Keeffe that's there. It's just, it's Monet, Manet, more Picasso, Gauguin, Degas. Uh, it, it was it was tremendous to see those up close. I'll be damned. I didn't know there was anything in the Chicagoland area besides golf courses. Oh, there you go. Well, you know, you do your thing and I do mine. Uh, what, what about pizza? Just real quick, give yeah. us our listeners the Cliff Notes version on Chicago pizza. I'm biased. My favorite pizza in the south suburbs is Aurelio's. It has a wonderful sweet sauce. They have 50-plus-year-old ovens in the Homewood location. And uh, Matt has a, an Aurelio's hat. Oh, I have Aurelio's. I have a lot of stuff. I got a mug. Uh, they had pullovers there, and if they sold them, I would have bought one. I reminisced with one of the the waitresses there because she had worked there since the 70s, and she knew the woman who worked the front desk and was my babysitter when I was growing up. But tremendous cheese. The sauce is just the best sauce I think you'll ever have. I didn't have it this time, but the sausage is just, oh, my God, it's my favorite food in the world. We also tried, for the first time, we tried Paisano's, which was downtown, and that was was pretty good. I, I I liked the sauce. I thought the cheese was pretty good. The crust was excellent. I, I it was these are these are kind of more um, thin crust, which for Chicago is still pretty thick. But thin crust, non pan, deep dish pizzas, uh, more of a tavern cut style, and uh, and that was pretty good. And then uh, Pequods. I've never had Pequods, and that is more of a deep dish. Uh, it's a favorite of professional wrestler CM Punk who is my favorite pro wrestler, 
and he's a Chicago native. Tried it on his recommendation, and I liked Pequot's a lot. I thought it was excellent. If you're going to eat any of that stuff and play golf on the same day, you better <laughs> you better damn well make sure you're walking nine or eighteen. <laughs> And, and, and you may want to do it after you eat the pizza. I would say. I mean, before. Yeah, I would say golf then eat. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to get stuck out on the fifth hole, a couple holes from the bathroom uh, after that. All right, well, let's go somewhere else in the country. Enough about Chicago, my favorite city in the country. Uh, let's go to New England. You just came back. Well, today, because of your aforementioned flight adventures. And let's start with not Concord. Concord, Concord, C-O-N-C-O-R-D, but Concord Country Club, uh, the course, the community. And before we get into that, little fun fact, uh, Concord is home to not one but two private prep high schools, boarding schools. One of them is the alma mater of Steve Carell of the office fame, and the other is the alma mater of Caroline Kennedy and Queen Noor of Jordan. I looked that up. I thought that was kind of fun. Well... It's also home of Concord Country Club. Well, that's is why we're, we're, that's why we're talking here. about it. We're not here to talk about Steve Carell or Queen Nor of Jordan. We'll be pretty brief on this. We got a big Toro-sponsored Enduring Greatness feature about Concord Country Club and Superintendent Peter Rapocchio and his team and the fabulous Donald Ross design and what they've done to preserve it over a long period of time in our May issue. And then we're going to have Peter on the pod- podcast in June. We're really excited excited to kick this project off but yeah i was up there doing the reporting and the site visit for the story and uh just what what a wonderful golf course what a wonderful club uh the club draws members from just four communities you have to live in one of four communities up there to be a member of concord country club imagine just having that limited of a pool of potential members no national membership at concord Concord. no generational members it's byob <laughs> the clubhouse is the old horse barn from the, uh, the, the, the property had in the 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, the club was established in 1895, moved to its current site in 19, 1913. The, the course opened for play, nine Donald Ross design holes in 1914. And then in the 1930s, they added nine more Donald Ross holes. So think about that. It's got nine early Ross holes on it and then nine, uh, holes that, Ross designed later in his career. So that's pretty darn cool that there's Donald Ross from two different eras hmm. at Concord Country Club. Some hilly holes, some flat holes. You can see where it was once farmland. You can see where it wasn't farmland. Uh, just a club that knows its brand, knows what it wants to be, and just has done a tremendous job. And it just keeps getting better. They're always doing projects. They're working with uh, architect Andrew Green right now, who is blowing up and doing work all over the country at you know classic type golf courses he's doing a lot of donald ross courses we did a story about his work mm-hmm. at oak hill he's worked at inverness uh just got done at scioto he's working at interlocking but concord was one of re- really the first uh projects that he created a master plan for and they just every year just keep doing elements of that plan i mean the club is adding a new uh pump house and um irrigation pond right now to increase its water hauling holding and stormwater capture capacities uh peter and his team just do fabulous work uh just a pleasant place i mean the membership is really nice from what i understand you know the the people that work on the golf golf course maintenance team are really 
nice. It's the course wasn't even open. I was there on March 31st. It doesn't open in seven to 10 days into April. So they get some time to prepare the course for the season. I was actually there on the day of the first fairway mow on March 31st. So that was kind of cool to see a course get its first little uh, trimming of the new year. Uh, I feel like real quick, I, just, I feel like a lot of New England wakes up in about the first or second week of April because a lot of golf courses open historically the Red Sox and the season used to start in the middle of April. Now it's much earlier. And then of course, uh, Patriots day and the Boston marathon. So more so than other parts of the country, I feel like new England really kind of hibernates until, you know, April 7th, April 10th, April 14th, somewhere in that range. Yeah. And we're not going to get into too much more of the golf course. We want people to read the story and then actually listen to the, the, the podcast with Peter, because he's the one that knows the golf course after the, the visit and, you know, I walked all 18 holes with Peter and met his assistants and spent a lot of time chatting with them and soaking in the history of the club. I walked around Concord and Concord has a lot, a lot of history. In fact, the Revolutionary War started in Concord, Massachusetts. So I had a chance to go to the North Bridge where it all started, where the first shots were fired. <laughs> and I walked around Minuteman National Historic Area. It's got two sections. I probably walked eight miles between the two sections. You know, saw where Paul Revere Road, saw some of the old um, uh, barn houses, saw some of the um, places where the battles were fought on that, that first day in those early stages of the Revolutionary War. Uh, really cool. I think that that's going to help me even tell a better story, you know, walking around the town like that and some of the historic sites. It also has a great literary history. Of, oh, yeah. Ralph Waldo Emerson, David Thoreau, Nathaniel Hawthorne, mm -hmm. Louisa May Alcott um, are buried at the Sleepy Hollow Cemetery in town that opened in 1855. So I did go into a bookstore. Um, hopefully it makes me a better writer. I think it maybe will inspire <laughs> me to tell a better story about Concord Country Club. Going into a bookstore? You know, did you buy anything? I bought a actually a book about narrative nonfiction journalism. Oh, so no, no Thoreau, no, uh, no, I'm not, into it. No you know me, Hawthorne. Matt, you know, if it ain't real, I, I don't read it. Someday I'll get you to read some fiction. Well, I got to make sure that I, we probably have what, 250 to 300 golf books in the office. I think oh, I should try least. to read all those first. I think I've only probably read half of them. Matt and I acquire books and magazines and content at an alarming and podcast even at an alarming rates. Nothing but, wrong with this. You know, I think one day I just need to like stop the acquisition, consume what I have, but I don't know if that day will ever come. But anyway, uh, you know, for me, I'm a golf geek. I'm a history geek. History was my um, second major in college. I majored in journalism and history. So to, to go to Concord, Massachusetts for work and see a wonderful golf course and walk around that town was pretty darn awesome. And yeah, we're just going to make you wait to the uh, Enduring Greatness <laughs> story in our podcast with Peter to to actually uh, consume the good stuff from Although that trip. Both of those are coming up fairly soon. It'll be here before you know it. Uh, you made one more stop, not on this trip, but a, a couple weeks ago, to Providence and the uh, New England Regional Turfgrass Conference and Show. I thought we talked about this already. We, I guess we haven't talked about this on the show, huh? No, we have not. We okay. did the... Uh, our last podcast was about the golf courses in Southern Nevada, but we never oh. made it to the New England okay. Regional Turfgrass Conference and Show, which is, I'll say it right here, one of my favorite annual reoccurring events in the golf industry. I just absolutely love going to Providence every year. Um, Gary Sykes and the North 
and the New England Regional Turfgrass Foundation team are just always beyond accommodating. They stage a wonderful event that mixes uh, education and commerce. You see uh, superintendents, assistant superintendents, equipment managers, sports field managers, landscape contractors. I think they had a cemetery track this year. So you see people <laughs> no from kidding. all aspects of the uh, the turf and the green industry in New England up there. That's they cool. had over 1,600 attendees, uh, 135 exhibiting companies, and the New England Regional Turfgrass Foundation has funded more than $2.5 million for turf research since 1998. The event didn't happen last year. It was really the last event that happened in 2020 before things really got weird and closed and shutting down and those type of things. So it was just great to be back there. Providence is a wonderful city, uh, great place to go on a morning run, uh, great place to eat uh, seafood and Italian food. But more importantly, it's just an outstanding event. And I would say that if you manage a golf course in a cool weather environment, that might be one event that you really um, consider going to. I ran into Mike Borgoff. He's the superintendent at the Pines Country Club in Morgantown, West Virginia. I visited him a few years ago, and he goes to the New England Regional Turf Foundation Conference and show regularly because he says it's just tailored to his education needs, and he likes going up there. So we got to see some of our golf course industry contributors, got to see Terry Buchan, Tim Morgan, Mm -hmm. Trent Manning, and had dinner and spent time with all of them. Uh, To me, it was really striking when you see – uh, Mel Lucas was there, speaking of book hmm. signings, Mel Lucas, who wrote the uh, History of Greenkeeping book that was released in late 2020, was there signing his book. And I took a picture of him and Terry Buchan. And, geez, uh, the stories they have and the combined oh industry gosh. experience. and A the century thing, between them. At you least. know, it's really motivational when you see people like Terry and Mel and Tim Morgan, who have been in the industry for such a long time, still going to these events and still sitting in the edu- educational rooms like they're – uh, trying to land their first superintendent job and land as much as they can. To me, that's really inspiring to see uh, people that have given so much in the industry continue to go to the events and to continue to have that quest for learning. And to me, and you know, Matt, I wrote my uh, April column about this, you know, just observing people like that can help you with your own career. Well, I'll get there, hopefully next year. Uh, I'd like to get up to the the, the, the Nertsy. Is that the shorthand? Uh, the, the, Does anybody call the it? The foundation's that? called NERF, but yeah. uh, I don't know if anyone, I don't think I've heard the NERTSY acronym. Well, N E R T C, NERTSY, or NERTSYs, if you want to put the show there. Anyway, I'll get up to New England. Uh, I love it up there. It's funny because every year I go to that show, I say I got to make it up there and visit some golf courses, and the summer window is just so <laughs> short to do it. It's not exactly the easiest place to, to get to parts of New England. Especially when you're talking uh, Rhode Island and Cape Cod and Maine and New Hampshire and Vermont, you know Boston's a bit easier to get to because of direct mm-hmm. flights. So it was kind of cool to be at that event and then three weeks later be on the ground at a golf course in in Massachusetts for for a story. Yeah, well, like I said, you'll get back. I'll get up there. Uh, we'll both be in a very special place by the time folks listen to this, or we'll be on our way. Uh, I'll I'll just say because this comes out on Tuesday. Happy Masters Week, everybody. Happy Masters Week. And and here's to hopefully Tiger has decided by the time this podcast comes out that he's playing. We'll see. And uh, hopefully the weather hangs on. I'm going to put you on the spot, Matt. Who's your Masters pick? Well, Woozy's not playing. And and Bernard's not playing either, is he? Bernard's playing. I'll, I'll pick we Bern- got a ticket in my I'll office pick, to pick, prove that Bernard's playing. I'll, I'll, I'll pick. Uh, well, if Tiger can't win, I'll pick, I'll pick Langer. Those, those are my two. That would 
by far be the biggest sports story of the year. Sixty-four <laughs> year old Bernard Langer won the Masters. What if what if he and Tiger are in the in the uh, final group on Sunday? That would be that'd be pretty cool. Pretty amazing. <laughs> well, that's it for another episode of Greens with Envy. I'm Matt Lowell. He's Guy Cipriano. We produce the magazine. We produce many of these podcasts, too, and we seldom do credits on Greens with Envy, but I have it in front of me, so let's just zip through this. Our columnists in golf course industry, just the best. You've already heard a few of their names in this episode. Terry Buchan, Henry Delosier, Bradley S. Klein, Tim Morgan, Matthew Wharton. Lots and lots of fantastic regular contributors, too. Tyler Bloom, Trent Bouts, Lee Carr, Ron Furlong, Trent Manning. You just heard his name. Judd Spicer, John Torsiello. Anthony Williams, and Rick Wolfel. Dave Zai is our publisher. Russ Warner handles sales. Jim Blaney designs the magazine. Caitlin Sellers makes sure everything goes where it should. She's really good at her job. Christina Warner makes sure you all receive the magazine. Kelly Antle makes sure we all get paid. Amanda Cafardi and Irene Sweeney help handle production and marketing, lots of other stuff. Anna Kolar, Cody Minnick, Tom Ballman, Brock Andorada, and Patrick Brion. They are the, the tech brainiacs. They're our IT team. Chris Foster is our president. You forgot Ryan Jacobs, who runs the IT department. Oh, well, I never put Ryan in, so Ryan Jacobs, too. And right. he's always helpful for us. He is. It's, it's <laughs> and in, he loves golf. It's nothing intentional. I'll add him in. Ryan Jacobs. And above all else, we could not do what we do without you. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk with you again. I don't know. Maybe we'll talk with you from the road for a special uh, Georgia-themed episode of Greens with Envy. I don't know. That's a good idea. I'll bring the mic.